This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Wang, co-founder and CEO of Telecare, one of Australia's fastest growing and largest virtual clinics providing accessible, affordable and efficient specialist and allied healthcare services for all Australians. Michael shares his journey and experience in starting up a virtual clinic, combining business skills, technology skills and medical skills within the founder group and the experience needed to provide a digital-first healthcare service experience for patients and their respective healthcare providers. The result is a scalable, high-growth business infrastructure that cleverly combines existing healthcare systems and integrations with new applications developed by Telecare, all focused on key stakeholders such as patients, the team of healthcare providers and referrers and ultimately offering a high-quality, holistic, continuous care service for patients, as well as a reliable support for their GPs. You hear me speak a lot about digital-first thinking in healthcare and how important it is to build the virtual bridge between providers and patients in between traditional appointment-based approaches to support information sharing, education, engagement, and ultimately success with healthcare outcomes. Michael and the team at Telecare are an excellent example of virtual clinic potential and how it benefits from bringing in startup thinking and diverse skills and experience within the founder group and the management team. Let's jump in. Well, hey there, Michael. How are you doing today? Hi, Arnie. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I generally am very enthusiastic about all types of innovations that deal with digital first thinking in healthcare. And I think your story is an exemplary example of that with telecare. So I'm excited to sort of hear about the journey because you've kind of not been at it for a very long time. You sort of kicked off telecare in 2019, I think. The idea started in 2019. So I think we're about three years in now. And we saw our first patient, I believe, in July 2019, a bit under three years. The journey started when the co-founders and I, so my wife, Lena, and Dr. Christopher Sia, who's a nephrologist, and Dr. Raymond Wen, who's a GP and GP owner here in Melbourne, we came together and we thought about what was the issue with healthcare. And at the time, the first iteration of the idea was that we wanted to create, looking at some overseas models, perhaps a some type of community-based or language-specific telehealth service, given that Australia has such a multicultural background. We're looking at perhaps doctors focusing on Chinese-speaking doctors, Vietnamese-speaking doctors, Italian-speaking doctors, and utilising the internet to reduce some of those barriers, obviously being able to locate a doctor which you could empathize and, and understand a lot better. But soon we realized perhaps the market size wasn't big enough. And that's when we looked at really specialist distribution, Australia-wide. And we realized that there was a very long wait times in, in regional areas, given that Australia has such a large landmass and a population of about 26 million people. You, From a geographic distribution point of view, you not only have roughly 10% of the concentration of specialists in regional areas, you're going to have those specialists distributed in about you know 90% of the geographic range as well. That's where the idea came from. And we've been quite active in regional Australia and moving more into metro in the last few months, six months before the coronavirus started. So 
I would say better to be lucky than good. So we were founded the business six months and then the coronavirus kicked off. And that's when we picked up a lot of steam. There weren't many players doing what we're doing, which is a end-to-end really private practice for the specialist where the specialist could join us. They could just worry about the medicine and we would take care of everything else. So I'm similar to what they were receiving a private practice, which is patient acquisition, appointment booking, general administration, even things like chasing up blood tests and doing the billings, our team would do. We soon realized doing that, there were um, a lot of inefficiencies. So it was quite a surprise to me that 80 to 90% of the correspondence through all the regional GP clinics we were getting were still faxes. And obviously with faxes, non-digital files, you needed a full-time staff just to sit there, look at the faxes, punch in the, the digital data into a clinical file, then upload that file underneath the patient file under the Core Plus, which is the PMS we use. And then we soon realized there was like a lot of automation we could do. So then we started building our own. We formed our software team. And really that was what Telecare started as. And now we have over 100 specialists across 30 specialties with about 1,200 or so GPs referring to us. I wanted to ask you about just touching on that sort of background. It has been sort of a short period of time. You're sort of two or three years into it now. And you've got quite a diverse set of talents amongst your partners representing business, marketing, and medical. Tell me more about that. Is that just sort of synchronicity because the relationships involved or were you very deliberate around the type of partnership that you wanted to form? I would say the startup started when I married my wife, Lena, (laughs) in finance consulting and business consulting. So that was really just what the resources we had in-house, literally. But moving into such a highly regulated area, I went through high school. So I went to Scotch College, which is a private boys' school here. And a lot of my friends became doctors. I went to high school, Dr. Christopher Sia. He was actually one of my groomsmen. So very close childhood friends throughout high school. Dr. Raymond Wen, we went to uni together. We used to play football together. And you know, I wasn't smart enough to get into medicine, but I always had a bit of a business led me, given that my parents were entrepreneurs as well. And moving in such a like, highly regulated field, I understood that we really needed the doctors supporting us and giving us insight on what the demands of the industry were. One of the cornerstone principles that resonates throughout the business is that we need to understand the users. And although the patients are very important, patient outcomes are what we strive for, we really need to engage the GPs and the specialists who utilize the platform and allow our systems as well as our product to be catered to their tastes as well as to make it as convenient as possible for the specialists to deliver the consults and the GPs and their patients to receive those consults. Looking back, it was definitely by design, but it's kind of just fallen into place. And, you know, Dr. Krifasi is our CMO. Dr. Raymond Wen is our Chief of Partnerships and Growth. The smarts needed come from four general perspectives, being a healthcare provider's point of view, a developer's point of view, a subject matter expert's point of view, and an investor's point of view because the then between those different perspectives and having that area of specialised knowledge in those particular areas, I think are critical to success in business generally, not just getting through a startup phase, but just uh, continuing to grow through the whole life cycle of a business. And so when I was looking at your team and obviously as I've gotten to know you and Peter, who's your head of partnerships as well, it's pretty clear to me that you have on board everybody, all of those perspectives that are needed. How would you sort of respond to that? Do you think that's contributing to some of the success that you're experiencing at the moment? We would be nothing. Telecare would be nothing without the people who work here. And it's always messy hiring in the startup industry because you often, I would say kind of broadly, it's not the role which fits the person. It's the person who then creates the role when they come in. So even when we first started, I didn't know I was going to be the person running the marketing, 
Lena didn't know she was going to be the person managing the 100 specialists and ultimately being the practice manager of the entire facility. And when Peter came in, the story was that, oh man, we really need a product person. We also need to do business development. Why don't you just do both? (laughs) So that's where we got really good, smart people in. And then they kind of just found their own position in the company and it grew from there. And this is the first company I founded. So I can't say that's the right way to do it, but it's been working so far. So let's see where it takes us. You've also taken the approach of working with startup ecosystems in building the idea of telecare. That's not normal for healthcare providers. A lot of healthcare providers follow sort of a more traditional route and just look at the way healthcare is at the moment and then kind of copy it. What inspired that? And what's that journey been like for you? This is my first startup. So everything was kind of the norm for us when we first started this. I wanted to treat this business like a startup because in my head, when I first founded the business, like what's the difference between just a regular business starting and a startup? And something which I wanted to kind of pursue was very rapid growth and the potential to really revolutionize an industry. And to do that, I felt that although there are many startups in different fields, whether it be fintech, health tech, marketplaces, I felt I needed to learn from a lot of these businesses prior and look at their experiences and look at how we could scale very rapidly, reach product market fit, reach a lot of users and to utilize methodology, which was just extremely rapid growth using bloodly investor money. We have over 50 specialists um, who invested us as well, whether it be through Medical Angels, the, the syndicate fund, or just individual specialists who have been working on our platform and went like, hey, this is not a bad idea. I'll invest in the company. So that was kind of the overall plan was to look at what health is right now and how we can use the internet, use technology and grow that very rapidly. And that's when I, you know, I sought out accelerators such as Startmate and through Peter, through the rest of my team, got more involved in this kind of startup ecosystem where I could, through Startmate, found a lot of amazing mentors. Rob Deeming was one of my direct mentors through Startmate. He's now the general manager of AHM. He's one of the executive directors of Medibankers right now. And he taught me a lot about what to expect moving forward in the health tech startup. So so very grateful for those programs and those people that I've met throughout the last few years. I personally encourage it as well. That's partly why we created the Health Tech X community. We're very keen to share what we've learned in startup because it's not just a healthcare service experience. And in my view, I've coined a term digital first healthcare service experience is really what we're heading towards. And I think you have built in your marketing, you kind of refer to it as a virtual clinic. And I think that's relevant keywords for where the market is at. But I think where it's ultimately going is that sort of balance between delivering medical services or healthcare services, but using an aspect of the engagement model is built around the personas of the patient and developing ways to actually integrate into their lives more seamlessly and be able to do that in a seamless way that brings all that wonderful behavioral science that we've learned through software design and user experience design and customer experience design and even human-centered design. Are they kind of acronyms and terms that permeate your own vision for telecare? We have roles at the company such as the product manager, we have UI, UX designers, we have product owners. So these roles exist more in the startup industry or more the tech industry rather than health industries. But this is kind of something that I've reflected on a lot as well. And I feel that there's a lot of technology out there which is used for often almost what we've seen as mundane tasks. For example, if I order a pizza from DoorDash or from Domino's, I not only can order it, I can see a picture of the pizza while it's in the oven. 
I can track every single five meter radius where it might be. I know when it's going to be at the door. I know everything about it. Now, with healthcare, if I went off and got a blood test, I don't know when it's done. I don't know if it's reached my GP. I don't know if it's reached my specialist. I don't know if the results are super bad or super good. I don't know any of it. So it's kind of even looking at the juxtaposition of those two things. Like one is just getting a light snack and the other one is potentially something which can affect you for the rest of your life. We kind of want to marry a lot of this technology, which is ideas such as CRMs, such as looking at Salesforce, looking at HubSpot, looking at more modern day kind of SaaS products and looking at how we can bring those in to medicine and to help facilitate the patient outcome, as well as help automate the workload for the doctors and their team. I know what you mean when you talk about a product owner, but maybe expand that description. If you were speaking to a medical specialist, for example, or to a referrer, how would you communicate the idea of what a product owner is to them? A product owner really can be anyone who knows what they want. They might not know how to design it. They definitely not, wouldn't know how to code it, but there's someone who takes ownership of building the functions and building out the product and having the vision of the product itself. So within our business, myself, I would say I'm a product owner. Lena is definitely a product owner because she works with the specialists, the GPs and the patients on a day-to-day basis. And then we put all those ideas. Originally, we just did post-its. So we had like hundreds of post-its on a wall and these post-its would be like, receive facts from GP, really difficult, need to not hire a full-time person to do that. So that was the first iteration of the product. And then slowly we kind of looked at, okay, so how do we automate that? So, you know, we looked at OCR technology, we looked at machine learning technology to then go, okay, so a patient has come in, the OCR can read it, and then we can build some kind of interface with a PMS to upload that file straight away. And that process was, you know, the product owner had to come up with the idea and had to kind of throughout the development of the process, work with the product manager is ultimately kind of a project manager who, who links the technical team with the non-technical team and then helps ship the actual code and ship the actual product. I hope that was a good explanation. In summary, I guess the product owner is just someone who owns and has the vision for the end product. I think healthcare could really benefit from understanding that more. I think in the, in the context of clinical settings, what we often see are roles like receptionist or admin who are interacting regularly with patients outside of the, strictly speaking, the clinical setting. And they are developing a lot of insights and a lot of empathy with what the patient is looking for and what kind of goals the patient has. And then being able to translate that into an actionable set of changes to the way that the healthcare business operates is a way that healthcare could probably relate to what a product owner is doing. They're coming from the position of identifying who are we designing for, what kind of goals or aspirations do they have? What role do we play in helping them achieve those goals and be successful at doing that and also do it in a commercially sensible way? So you obviously don't want to go broke providing fantastic valuating patient experiences. So you've got to find that balance between providing outcomes for the customer in a financially sustainable way. I don't hear that term used very often. I don't see it in a lot of org charts within the healthcare sector at this point in time. And I think it's a real credit to you because I think you are marrying or synthesizing these different domains where you're coming at it. And I said it at the outset, you sort of take that business, marketing, software, integration and development and medical, and you blend those really nicely into the model. I think it's a real credit to the model. It's a big reason why I wanted to get you on and sort of talk about it. Because I, I see you as actually being slightly ahead of the curve as far as digital first thinking is concerned, because you're being a virtual clinic. You have to think about how to use the digital touch points in order to create patient experience as well as a team member or employee experience and even your referrers 
have to be thought through as far as those digital touch points. So it's kind of taking that traditional clinic model and saying, well, we don't have bricks and mortar. So how are we going to do this? Was that part of the business modeling stage where you're sort of looking at how can we do this in a virtual setting and what would need to be prioritized and different in order to make this work virtually? First of all, the product owner thing very eloquently put, Yanni, I think you're right. Like the key thing, which I didn't talk about the product owner was that insight. It's the insight into the users and how to turn that insight into product. And secondly, I guess the second part of the question, yes, it's something which we looked at quite a lot. So what we wanted to do is echoing back your first question about why we kind of treat this like a startup. We wanted to be able to scale this thing really fast and not have a lot of barriers. So although we're a virtual clinic, there are more than 100 specialists and across 33 specialties, that puts us on par with something like almost like the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the Alfred Hospital here in Victoria, in terms of number of clinicians and specialties we cover. And we couldn't have done that if we didn't really look at some of the physical barriers which have stopped us. So we obviously didn't have the funding to build a private hospital. So then we go, okay, so let's put that online. Let's put the clinicians, let's put the rooms on the internet like we're doing now. And the second thing that we really want to address was that the largest overhead in any private practice, whether it be GP or specialist, is labor. So I would say 60 to 70% of a practice's overhead will be paying for the administrative staff, whether it be receptionists, practice managers, nurses. And from what we observe, we often count there's one to 1.5 full-time staff, support staff, per one full-time specialist that work in a clinic. So if we wanted to grow to 100 specialists, if we wanted to grow further, the next problem we had to address was this idea of physical labor and not having that blow out because for every five to 10 people, receptionists, you need like a team lead. Then every five team leads you need, you need a practice manager. So we looked at, you know, how do we build a lot of automation? How do we deal, build a lot of tools to be able to track and have automated accountability for our staff as well as kind of reduce that context switching between an initial booking for a first patient for an endocrinologist to doing a putting through a mental health plan for someone with 20 seconds of a psychologist. So that's the technology we've been building is to look at how do we automate, how do we increase the efficiency, a lot of these day-to-day tasks, which often don't, these people don't get a lot of attention because it's just specialists will hire people to run their private practice and they'll just kind of go, well, I'll do the medicine, you do the admin. And we've kind of taken an approach where we've looked at these, these administrative tasks through a lens of perhaps a SAS or more of a CRM, I would call it. And this is kind of the area, another area of the business which we hope to develop is a SAS arm. So we're releasing these tools hopefully later this year, which will help a lot of practices being able to automate all of those mundane tasks, which are done every day. You also do something else that I think is right on the money, and that is you're not trying to build everything yourself. And I think a lot of companies that sort of start with software try and do that. I personally think it's a mistake in the sense that when there's already components of features or aspects of applications, whether it's independent software as a service or things that add on to it, reinventing the wheel is not necessary at that point in time. But I think the art of it is being able to do the systems integration and actually figure out what the end-to-end patient experience needs to be and how can we bring systems together in order to facilitate those touch points across the whole journey. And again, referring back to your chart and also your business plan, you seem to do that really well where you've taken some pre-existing products, but then you've actually addressed the gaps and you kind of, you are developing the stuff that is not currently addressed out in the market. So it's a really clever use of your own resources as a starting point. It helps you design your service experience in alignment with what your patients and your team and your referrers actually need. 
spot on yarning. And that's kind of looking at companies like Zero, looking at companies like HubSpot and Salesforce. They know what is missing in the market. And they know a lot of people have done tools which are already mature, have users, and they just want to fill in the gaps. So we have taken the same approach where we looked at our first SaaS tool, we've just called it Paper to PMS. And ultimately what it does is that a fax comes in, it gets automatically scanned. And then if there's a matching clinic or matching file, it just automatically uploads it under the PMS tool. That might not seem like super sexy in terms of all the other kind of health tech SaaS platforms that are coming out with machine learning, AIs reading radiology reports and reporting to the 0.1% accuracy. I believe, and the rest of the team believes, like this is a tool that's really needed because again, there are a lot of faxes out there and there are a lot of just full-time people and their job is just to kind of sit down and read the facts and regurgitate the information back into the PMS. doesn't mean we have to rebuild the PMS. just means we have to kind of build the section which helps the people every day uploading those faxes under the patient file. I mean, if you really think about it, some of the biggest tech companies in the world, if you talk Apple, if you talk Google, for example, they don't have 100% market share across any industry that they play in. So you can't be all things to everyone. It's a matter of actually understanding where the core value comes from and then using integration. That's the beauty of where we're at with technology generally. This whole interoperability piece and being able to actually put together systems that all specialise in their own way in key areas of value, but it's the combination of those things, I think, at a business level that is an art form and needs continuous improvement over time. And that's something that a lot of health providers, I think, don't do particularly well. They might just start with a product, but then end up sort of compensating for no integration with a lot of manual processes and a lot of time motion costs within their areas of practice. I think going back to your point around how do you scale and how do you grow fast? Well, you've got to get the barriers out of the way. And if there's a lot of manual processes, that's lag. That's going to reduce your ability to scale and grow fast. So being able to actually think about that at a system level I believe is actually something that a lot of modern healthcare providers need to have on board, either as a role or somebody in the leadership team who's actually thinking about how to make all that work seamlessly. What are your thoughts on that? I would agree you know, 100% with this, what he said, Yanni, and it's the idea that even a very mature business, so even I would say some of the largest um, you know, health tech companies in Australia or in, in the US, they can't build all these things at once. So you need to rely on an ecosystem because if you have a good tool, which integrates with another good tool. One plus one doesn't give you two. One plus one might give you 10, might give you 20, because you're really solving for a key issue. And then a really kind of big issue in healthcare is that because you're dealing with such sensitive information, how does that information flow from party to party? And how do people get informed of that information? So I think integration and this idea of a these products which are coming out of the market now to have APIs in Core Plus. So we use the Core Plus API quite a lot and it's been very, very useful. It's like, how do you allow this API to potentially connect with another one so you don't have to replicate a lot of the data and a lot of the complex data and sensitive data. And through these APIs, you can also build security mechanisms which allow that data to flow safely as well instead of having to fax it back and forth between clinics. And just going back to that paper to digital SaaS product that you've developed it was interesting you sort of talked about it as not being that sexy or glamorous uh, as compared to some other things around AI, machine learning and what have you. Here's my opinion on this, Michael. I think that there are a lot of tech companies, particularly in the hosting arena, in the cloud arena, who do want to evangelize the next thing, the latest, greatest, where AI is going and all the rest of it. But I don't think human beings at a workflow level quite fully ready for that. It's sort of coined this term that innovation in healthcare needs to happen at human speed. In other words, if 
you insert really leading edge piece of technology, but the humans won't embrace it or use it or adapt to it, then it's useless. So you sort of have to find that synergy between introducing the innovation technically as well as changing the culture so that the human beings are able to fully utilise and embrace that particular technology. So when I think about the facts problem or the paper problem, that is ubiquitous. Everybody gets that. It is a real pain point. So being able to actually take the time motion out of that workflow, that's really valuable and everybody can get it. And you're not asking people to necessarily wrap their head around that and try and change the way they currently do things. It's really, it's just obvious. It's a no-brainer. That's kind of how I think tech should be. <laughs> you know, It should actually not try and ask people to bend their minds around something. It's kind of meeting the market where it's at. What are your thoughts on that? That's product market fit 101. And it's kind of echoing what I said is that the medical industry in Australia, especially in the specialist industry and the allied health industry, we work, it's very fragmented because the natural kind of progression of a specialist is you go to medical school, you get your papers, and then um, that's like a 20-year process. And once you've done that, you may work in the public system, which is a very established and well-managed system with, with a lot of interactivity built already. But then upon maybe completing two years there, you go out and work out in a private practice, and that's when you get your own ABN. You might work for a small private practice first, and then after a while, you establish your own private practice. So for every street corner you drive past, for every kind of major road, every kind of 50 or so houses you drive down a major road, you realize there's a medical clinic, right? And that medical clinic is run by probably an individual doctor who's the head physician as well as the business owner, a few doctors that work underneath him. And then um, the practice manager, a lot of the time, is actually the better half of the practice owner. So that is actually just a business on its own. And it's very difficult for each of these individual clinics, and especially a lot of these doctors who need to be doctors, business owners, practice managers at the same time, for them to build technology to integrate with the kind of systems around them. So the pathology companies, the pharmacies, the GPs. So then they just fall back on, if it's, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So then that's the seem to work and then do it. But at the same time, because everything is so fragmented, when you release new technology, it's so difficult to kind of market and to, as well as get people to uptake it. Because their, to a certain extent, technology that they're used to is not super intuitive and then game-changing technology. And their main focus, the owner and the person in charge, their main focus is still on making sure the business does well and also most of the time just looking after patients. So this is why I think it's just with our product, it's just like if we can just go up to a doctor and say, ask them a question, how much time does one of your staff spend on converting faxes into digital files? I would say a lot of doctors would say, you know, I probably have like a half-time or full-time person doing that. And we say, what if we could get a machine to do it and that person who's doing faxes can do something else and they could reduce that time by 75, 80% and just check that the OCR converting the physical information was correct. I think, you know, that got a lot of our specialists excited and a lot of our GPs excited. So then we're like, okay, well, let's go and build it. We actually, we've already built it and we're using that internally for um, how we manage a lot of faxes already. It seems to work. No, it's really great. And I can imagine with that kind of ABN consulting specialist, if you've got a team member who's just doing a mundane, I use the analogy of rubber stamping, just doing a mundane, repetitive task all day, every day, you're probably going to have a bit of turnover from time to time. So then you've got to recruit and you've got to get somebody back up to speed. I mean, there's, aside from being a more expensive way to do something, it impacts the human negatively and also the management negatively as well. So getting rid of those tedious, repeatable tasks liberates that individual to do more creative and meaningful work within the context of that practice and perhaps unlock other value. Going back to that sort of product owner mindset, unlock other value in the way that 
that particular healthcare provider is working. Look, I'm a big fan of all this, and I think there's just tremendous opportunity to infuse, I guess, what we've learned through health tech innovation with the service delivery model of healthcare. So perhaps, Michael, how would you summarise, as far as I could see, there's probably three key stakeholders in a virtual clinic, one being the patient, the other being your collective team of specialists and allied health professionals, and the third one being your referrers. How would you describe the patient experience, the specialist experience, and the referrer experience in your model? At a very high level, I guess, in terms of the customer journey. Access to information and notifications is something that we focus on, that we differentiate ourselves from really what the traditional private practice might do. So it's things like as soon as we receive a referral, we're able to almost instantly get that referral out to the specialist. Now, the specialist is able to see that. And as soon as they see the referral and go, okay, I'm happy to see this patient, or I need further blood tests this patient prior seeing them, they can then get that information almost instantly back to the GP and the patient. And as soon as that specialist is done with the consult and has a letter, a report ready for the GP, that letter is then sent back to the GP and then notifies the GP straight away to know what follow-up actions to take. So it's trying to reduce a lot of these points of communication, which were relatively not complex, but relatively probably traditional and slow, like using faxes, using these other tools and things slipping through the cracks because most of this communication is actually done now and by receptionists and it's done physically by people. It's just to build out the technology, allowing communication to flow readily and to really flag key issues. So if something was flagged by the specialist that the GP needs to know about straight away, the patient knows about straight away, they get that information you know, within the second and they can act upon that and better look after their health and, and vice versa. If the GP has a patient who who's, needs to be urgently seen, who's they feel that needs support straight away from the specialist, the GP can then send that to us and we can flag with the specialist straight away, get confirmation and get that patient booked in within the day or as soon as possible. Are you finding that the virtual clinic model is very attractive from a recruitment standpoint or in terms of building your provider network? What kind of reaction are you getting from the market? COVID has helped a lot because I think the COVID has helped the digitalization of health and the uptake and really the appetite for digital health. So when we first started, it was a little bit slower, a lot slower, I should say. And people were like, ah, oh, you know, can I do telehealth? Can I see a patient by telehealth and offer a clinical and a patient outcome, which is similar to if I were to see the patient physically? And then coronavirus rolled around and then a lot of doctors, a lot of specialists, they just had to do it. And throughout the process, these doctors were like, oh, wow, I actually can do it. You know, if the things were aligned, if I could get my diagnostic reports on time, if I can communicate with the GP, if I can communicate with the nursing home nurses, the carers, right, I can actually offer quite a high level of service. So if I can get these forms filled out prior to the consult. So it's been easier to bring on specialists to telecare, I would say, in this day and age, easier than ever before. And I think that's because we do have specialists and there is that trust as well because specialists are often look at their peers. So if a specialist can see that, hey, you know, my peer, you know, my uni mate works with telecare, give them a call and receive relatively positive feedback from them, they're more likely to jump on as well. So I think that kind of first mover market advantage and as well as building a product which the specialists do like has, has allowed us to scale quite rapidly by bringing on more specialties and more specialists. And in turn, when we get more specialists and specialties, the GPs then have more choice, more access to subspecialties, things like language is spoken, and also shorter wait times. And we've also built the analytic tools allowing us to kind of go, okay, so, you know, we have 200 referrals coming in from endocrinology in the last three weeks. Wow, our, our wait times are going to, our average wait time is going to increase 
you know, more than two weeks. So, you know, let's go out there and get a couple more endocrinologists to make sure that we have enough supply to meet the demand. And that's kind of using that Uber-esque kind of mindset to go, okay, so I have demand on one side, I have supply on the other side. So to have a good user experience for both sides in the marketplace, I need to kind of balance those out to make sure wait times aren't too long for the patients and and the specialists, there's enough patients and referrals there for them to be happy with and to keep them busy. I think you've got the right mindset, the right team, the right model, Michael. So one last question, I'm mindful of our time this morning as well, but your vision, where's this going to get to? What's telecare going to look like in five to 10 years time? I love this question because every time I say this, it sounds like a bit of a pipe dream, but I really hope for telecare to be part of almost like a fully integrated healthcare system where patient can have multiple specialists and medical practitioners looking after them and having those practitioners all being able to communicate and having the administrative costs lowered substantially, but also the efficiency increase. For example, if a patient were to hurt their back at work and they needed to see a pain specialist, a neurosurgeon, and perhaps a psychiatrist as well, having a centralized platform where those specialists and the GP can work together and then can result in in the best possible patient outcome. And also to have that service available for a lot of people in regional areas, in underrepresented and underserved communities, where there might not be a lot of specialist supply there, and being able to offer them a similar level of healthcare that someone living in the middle of a city might receive. Yeah, I think that's a great vision. And I think it's absolutely achievable, Michael. I kind of get that same sense when I look at the telecare model, I can see that playing itself out. When I bring up terms like digital first healthcare, sometimes people hear that as digital only or digital exclusive, and it's not what it means at all. It just means that there is this virtual veneer over the prevailing healthcare system that is where most of the clinical engagement can happen. And it's asynchronous and it's remote and it's telehealth and it's those kinds of manifestations in terms of today. But ultimately there is there are physical encounters that are needed whether it's a surgery, for example, or whether it's a blood test. So we're not saying replace person-to-person contact in healthcare. We're just saying that there's this virtual stuff that goes in between the appointments and in between the points of care that stays with the patient through their entire journey. It's a continuity in a true sense. And I think you're really well placed. I'm really excited, Michael, to hear the ongoing parts of your journey I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface today. I'd love to spend more time with you and talk more about the potential of telecare, but I really appreciate your time and thanks so much for sharing the story up to date. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au or if you have any feedback about the show you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram or email by following the links in this episode's show notes and finally don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app and if you like what you heard leave us a five-star review it really helps other people find the show I'm your host Yanni Sopanos and I'll speak to you in our next episode <laughs>